10 years ago, I was largely talking about the basics, like the role of the gut microbiome in digestion, in protecting against infection, in synthesizing vitamins and doing these various functions in the gut. And since then, it's, it's really expanded. I mean, those early years, we were also seeing some inklings of gut connections to other organs. For example, the gut-brain axis was one of the first to emerge or the connection between the gut microbiome and weight gain and obesity, metabolic syndrome. But in recent years, it's really honestly been connected to the health of almost every organ system. So now we see connections between the gut and the kidney and the gut and bone health and even the gut muscle axis. So there's really... I mean, it really has effects on virtually every, every organ system in our body and has been connected in some way to virtually every chronic disease. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this episode, I share a conversation with Dr. Lucy Mailing, who's a microbiome researcher, educator, and the most passionate scholar I've met of integrative evidence-based gut health. A little more about Lucy, she received her bachelor's in biology from Kalamazoo College and her PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Illinois. She's authored several peer-reviewed journal articles related to the microbiome and health and was named an emerging leader in nutritional sciences by the American Society for Nutrition in 2017. On her website, lucymailing.com, she shares content dedicated to integrative, evidence-based articles about the microbiome, gut and skin health, and nutrition science. She's a nationally recognized speaker on gut health and one of the most trusted experts in the integrative health space. I've been following Lucy's work for a year, so I was really excited to finally connect with her, and we had a ton of fun with this conversation. She shared how the microbiome impacts virtually every aspect of our health, some factors that impact the gut lining, some methods we can use to screen for intestinal permeability and gut dysbiosis, and actions we can take to support a healthy microbiome. Now, before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get to the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm excited to be here with Dr. Lucy Mailing. Um, And I thought I would just start by asking you a little bit about your history growing up. Well, did you grow up in Michigan? I saw that you studied biology at Kalamazoo College, which is mm-hmm. not too far from where I grew up. So I'm curious about oh, really? your background. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, so I grew up in Southeast Michigan. So like Detroit metro area. Yep. Bloomfield Hills. Where at? Bloomfield Hills. Okay. Well, I- West Bloomfield. I went to uh, Birmingham Groves High School. So. Okay. We yeah. competed oh, yeah. against you in gymnastics. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I grew up in Northville. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah. So I grew up there and I went to the West side of the state for undergrad where I studied biology. Um, and yeah, that was actually where, where my whole health journey really started. I mean, I struggled with chronic eczema for my whole childhood, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really until I was an undergrad and, uh, my older sister was actually getting really into paleo and CrossFit and, okay. uh, kind of pointed me towards some, some articles. Um, it was actually Chris Cresser. Uh-huh. Uh, that initially kind of sparked, sparked the interest. Um, 
and yeah, pointed me to some articles that, oh, maybe your diet is related to the skin troubles that you've been having. And I was very, very resistant. I, I was, you know, I was very much an athlete, but I did not eat very well at all. Mm -hmm. Um, mostly refined carbs pretty much all day long. So, uh, (laughs) so it was definitely a transition. Yeah. But that was, that was kind of my, um, yeah, my, my entry point was like early, early undergrad and then just kind of snowballed from there. When I, when I finally, um, took her advice and like started like first like gluten-free and then like started just like making little changes from there, I did start seeing a lot of improvements, not just in my skin, but also like my recovery from workouts and just my overall energy felt like this brain fog that I'd had Mm -hmm. my whole life had lifted. And, um, yeah, it was just really amazing. And so, yeah, so that's how, how things started. Yeah. Amazing. How, when you take that root cause approach, you know, the symptoms that you're trying to affect can often get better, but then often you have these pleasant side effects also, like you said, Mm -hmm. your performance or your cognitive function, um, for people listening, can you just describe what, I know eczema is a, is a common problem. What it was like growing up with it? And then what are some of the common treatments that you tried like through childhood or before you got to college? Yeah. So eczema is basically an inflammatory skin condition. It definitely has allergic components. Um, it's not technically considered an autoimmune disease, although it has a lot of this, a lot of similar, um, components. And some people wonder whether it, it is in fact autoimmune. Um, so it's basically this really itchy, uh, scaly red rash. It's really no fun. Um, when I was younger, I would say I had it pretty patchy. Um, so it was like the insides of my elbows, the backs of my knees were often the areas that I got it when I was younger and pretty much was told, you know, hopefully you'll grow out of it, but you know, there's not really much we can do other than here's a steroid cream to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too frequently or, you know, that'll cause issues, but, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, really just given steroid creams and, and told that that was the best that the dermatologist could do for me. So, mm-hmm. um, and I, I saw, you know, plenty of specialists like allergists and things like that. And I did have some food allergies that I knew about, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of other food sensitivities that I didn't find out until much, la- much later. So interesting. And I think it's such a great example of sort of the downside of the approach of the current healthcare system of, you know, I have this symptom of a skin rash and we know it's somehow modulated by the immune system, but instead of like trying to understand what the root cause is, which could be different for every person, it's let's give a medication that's going to sort of dampen that immune response. Um, And then that can have side effects down the road too. Like you said, if you use it too often. Right. Yeah. And, and to my mom's credit, like she really did try to do elimination diets with me, but it was always like, Oh, let's remove tomatoes for a week. It's not Mm -hmm. that let's put that back in and, and do strawberries for a week. And unfortunately I would just, was never removing all the triggers. So it never made any difference. And so eventually we said, Oh, well, it's, it's not diet related. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, you know, functional integrative preventive medicine was really more in its infancy then. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot less resources around as well. Absolutely. So when you started learning about this and you started, you know, reading what Chris Kresser was putting out or learning about paleo, what was the approach that you took? And then how did you eventually find what worked for you? Yeah. So I would say initially it was just like really diving into kind of overall paleo diet and lifestyle Mm -hmm. principles, which was something I'd never come across before. Like I'd 
I'd been a multi-sport athlete my whole life. So I'd always been really active, but, um, had always skimped on sleep because of course, um, I was, I was busy dead, right? in high school and trying to, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I probably got six hours of sleep through high school yeah. every night. And, um, and my diet was absolute garbage. Mm. And, um, so it was really just kind of like overhauling, especially focusing on, on the diet piece. Mm -hmm. Um, but also bringing in some of those other lifestyle components as well. Um, and it was really his articles on the gut skin axis that really intrigued me. Mm. Um, particularly, um, just realizing that, that there is this connection between our our digestion and like our skin, which honestly, like now, now that I, I know it, right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's just so obvious that of course, you know, our skin is made up of what we eat. Mm -hmm. Um, so obviously that's, that's going to have an effect, but, um, that was really what was kind of initially, um, opening for me was, was the gut skin axis. And, and then when I started to see a lot of benefits from changing my diet and, um, started doing deeper dive on gut health and how I could really support my gut to, Mm -hmm. to influence my skin. And I started to see more benefits, um, that was when I really got interested in, in the gut microbiome and the research around that and decided that that was probably what I wanted to do for my, my career. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the track I took with that. So cool. And so cool when such a personal experience then grows this passion for you to actually make it your career. Um, so what I know you then eventually went on to um, an MD PhD program and have finished your PhD, decided not to go the MD route. Um, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you decided to pursue, um, research and then, you know, what your research looked like in that graduate program? Yeah. So I got involved with research pretty early in undergrad. Um, initially at Kalamazoo college, there wasn't a whole lot of research going on Mm because it was a, it was a smaller school. Um, but I was doing some research, um, involved in the molecular, um, interactions in Alzheimer's disease, and then also had a um, a summer internship working on some neuroscience research. So I, I already had kind of this basis of enjoying um, my research experiences. And then as I was starting to get really interested in this potential connection between the gut microbiome and health, I decided that um, I had to do a senior thesis for my biology degree. And I decided that I wanted to do it studying the gut microbiome. So I reached out to a professor at the University of Chicago, Dr. Katherine Nagler, and worked in her lab for a summer uh, where um, they study the effects of the gut microbiome on food allergies mm. um, in animal models. And um, that was just really, really uh, exciting to be a part of that and um, really sparked my interest even further in the gut microbiome and wanting to do research there. Um, so shortly thereafter, I started to apply to dual degree programs. And at this point, I was really like thinking, you know, I had. Um, I'd really been inspired by Chris Kresser's work and I thought, oh, maybe I can do something like that, you know, mm-hmm. basically, um, be able to work with, with patients and, um, and help people, you know, approach their, their health through this, this root cause approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of what I was thinking. And I, I would just wanted, uh, you know, basically to figure out what was the sustainable path to get there. Right. Um, and you know, having had all these positive research experiences, but also recognizing that um, the credibility of an MD might allow me to have, you know, financial stability as someone mm-hmm. who's, who's working in that area. So 
Um, so that was really what led me to pursue the MD PhD program. And I won't lie that having your, your med school paid for was a big component of, for sure. of pursuing that longer route. Um, but just kind of through a series of events, my, um, the med school was going through some changes mm-hmm. at the University of Illinois, which is where I um, was admitted to the program. And so they said, uh, basically, you're going to do instead of kind of doing it split, as a lot of people do. So most people who do an MD PhD program, they do two years of med school, their whole PhD, and mm-hmm. then the last two years of med school. Mm-hmm. But because of some of the changes that were going on, they said, okay, we're just going to have you do your whole PhD first, and then we'll we'll figure out what's going to go, where you're going to go from med school, basically, <laughs> which campus. So interesting, um, yeah. And so it was really just coincidence that I started out with a PhD. Um, and, and honestly, I think there were a lot of benefits of doing it that way because I, I've still had a lot of interaction with the dual degree program and a lot of mm-hmm. folks who were in a different track that had, you know, kind of had to split their time um, or kind of their, their psyche between, <laughs> between both parts. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I did the, the whole PhD and during that time, um, I started writing for Chris Kresser, um, mm-hmm. was the first thing. And then um, really just fell in love with science writing mm-hmm. uh, during that time. And, and yeah, being able to kind of synthesize different things from the literature and realize that I could, I could make that into something that could really, really help people just by putting, putting information out there, even without directly working with people. Which, by the um, way, is a really hard thing to do, and you do a really good job of it. <laughs> so I'm glad that you've taken this route because even, you know, even if you are sitting in front of like one patient at a time and helping them get to the root cause, I think that using your skill set to synthesize re- the research and be able to get that information out to so many more, you know, people, patients, clinicians, I think that you're probably having a much larger impact that way, at least from my perspective. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I do. Um, yeah. And so I just, I really, in a way that I never thought I would fell in love with science writing. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like all through high school, like I would say English was like my least favorite subject. Really? I really liked writing when I was uh-huh. younger, but somehow along, along the way, I just like, I don't know, the essays and things just really <laughs> took Not the fun you. out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I fell back in love in science writing and then, um, and then just, just things started to come up when, in my PhD research, I was reading things in the literature that didn't really make sense to me. Like no one had really looked at all the re- all of the literature in an area and like tried to piece together these kind of contradictory parts. Mm-hmm. And it was it was kind of topics that were just a little bit too advanced for the typical audience of, of Chris Kresser. And yep. so I decided to start my own blog on the side, mm-hmm. um, just just kind of for my own, um, you know, wanting to piece together some of these things. And mm-hmm. I didn't really think much would come of it. But in the last two years of my PhD, it just really took off, mm-hmm. um, which was amazing. And so rewarding. Um, cause like you said, you know, the ability to, to impact a lot of people and to hear about that impact from, from some of the writing I've done is just really, really rewarding. Um, and so, yeah, so by the time I was done with my PhD, I was already kind of like not looking forward to going to med school. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a long it, road that you've already it's a been long through. Road. Yeah. And, and, and also it was like, it was a thing that I always knew was like, this is something that I'm going to have to get through. Not, mm-hmm. not really necessarily something I was looking forward to because I, I could already see 
some of the flaws in the conventional system having, you know, really come through my own health with this functional approach Mm -hmm. and being like, knowing that it was going to be really difficult to navigate, Mm -hmm. um, you know, conventional medical school, um, knowing a lot of those discrepancies. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I took my husband and I, we took uh, a gap year, um, Mm -hmm. to travel a bit and about three months into the gap year, I realized, I'm not going to med school for the right reasons. And I <laughs> yeah. love scientific writing. You know, I already have a decent enough audience. I'm already consulting with people um, and really making an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I need the MD to be able to continue to do what I want to do. And and maybe I could just spend the next four to seven, you know, plus years that yeah. I would have spent in med school and residency just doing this, you know, more self-directed learning and scientific synthesis mm-hmm. um, and learn things that are you know, a lot of which will overlap with what I might have learned in med school, but mm-hmm. um, will be potentially more directly applicable to the audience that I'd already started to build. So, um, such a yeah. cool story, and so cool how how taking that gap year helped you make that realization. I think it's a, it's, a, it's such a common theme for people I've talked to who really like redirect and are able to really focus in on what's most important to them. Because I think so many times, like there was so much momentum for you. You were already in the program, Mm -hmm. like the MD it's like, well, and I could have this other degree. Maybe it would be more, like you said, financially secure or something like that. But when you take the time away and I experienced this myself last year, like when you finally take the time away and step back and realize, okay, what do I actually really want? Um, regardless of what the world around me expects of me. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so powerful. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate for people taking time off and it's so cool to hear how that played out for you too. Yeah, me too. I've, I've advised so many people to do the same now because it just, it really was the first time that I'd really slowed down and like tried to listen to that inner voice of what I really Mm -hmm. wanted versus what all the expectations had been had been built around me. And, uh, yeah, I just, I can't speak to how glad I am that I I took that time because I think I would have had, I think I would have come to that realization eventually Mm -hmm. if I hadn't done that, Mm -hmm. but I might've been, you know, a year into med school, really unhappy. Totally. Um, and yeah, not having had that space to really figure out what I wanted. Totally. So cool. Well, We're glad that you made that decision and I'm glad that you're here um, because as I was saying before we started recording, I don't think we've done a really dedicated episode on gut health or the microbiome here on the podcast. And so you're the perfect person to, to ask all kinds of questions. So I'm excited to do a little like gut health 101 here for um, our audience. So sounds great. Let's just start really basic. Um, can you describe, you know, people may have heard microbiome. What does the gut microbiome actually mean? What is it? Yeah. So it's basically the community of all the microbes that live in your gut. So that includes lots of bacteria along with some archaea, which are somewhat similar to bacteria, but not really, um, fungi, viruses, and some eukaryotes like protozoa. Um, and so this is the group that's basically co-evolved with us humans over thousands of years. Um, and, and of those, the bacteria are definitely the most well characterized. Um, so a lot of times when you hear about the microbiome, you're mostly hearing about gut bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are all these other types of, of microbes as well. Um, and they have, you know, an immense collection of genes too. So we, in terms of kind of thinking about the immensity of the microbiome, we are about um, 
we have about one bacterial cell for every one human cell. Mm -hmm. We have about 10 microbial genes for every one human gene. Um, so the, yeah, the, the genetic capacity of it is also pretty, pretty fast. Um, yeah. And it's relatively, a relatively new area of research too. I mean, I remember when I started med school, it was 2011. And so it was still, you know, in its infancy, but I remember just starting to hear about microbiome in some of the early studies in our research conferences and things like that. And then by the time I finished, it seemed like there was so much more out there. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of, kind of crazy to think about how important it is for our health, but how we didn't really make that connection until relatively recently in history. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has only come come about in the last two decades, and I would say has really hit its stride in the last last ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and largely that's because of the advances in sequencing technology that's allowed us to see so much more um, in the gut microbiome. So that's basically how how researchers are, are studying it now is basically isolating all the DNA from microbes and sequencing them. Whereas many decades ago, all we had was culture, where you basically like you know, streak the stool sample in a Petri dish and see, see what couple of microbes would grow in the lab, um, which is very, not very many compared to the <laughs> amount that we can see with this more advanced sequencing approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with this research and now starting to learn and understand how we interact with all these microbes in our gut, um, what do we know about the role that our microbiome plays in our health? Yeah. So I would say, you know, 10 years ago, I was largely talking about, you know, the, the basics, like um, the role of the gut microbiome in digestion, in protecting against infection, um, in synthesizing vitamins and doing these various functions in the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, it's, it's really um, expanded. I mean, those early years, we were also seeing some, some inklings of gut connections to other organs. For example, the gut-brain axis was one mm-hmm. of the first to emerge or the connection between the gut microbiome and weight gain and obesity, um, metabolic syndrome. Um, but in recent years, it's really honestly been connected to om- the health of almost every organ system. So now we see connections between the gut and the kidney and the gut and <laughs> bone health and even the gut muscle as- axis. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's really, I mean, it really has effects on virtually every, every organ system in our body. And uh, and, and has been connected in some way to virtually every chronic disease um, that we know today. You know, and some of that is, it's, it's definitely a bi-directional effect. So mm-hmm. we know, you know, for example, that the gut microbiome can really impact your propensity to obesity, but also being obese also is going to have um, consequences for your gut microbiome as well. So it's definitely a two-way street, but there are these very strong connections between the gut microbiome and our health. That's amazing. Could you explain just a couple of those connections? So you mentioned immune system or immune function. That's obviously a big one. How is it that our gut microbiome is related to our immune system? Yeah. So some people may not know this, but actually 70% of our immune system is in our gut, um, kind of low, lies right beneath that gut barrier. So the gut is actually, it's a hollow tube, um, but it's got these, these layers on the outside. So first you have kind of the gut epithelium, which is the, the basic of the barrier. But below that, you have this submucosal area, um, the lamina propria that has all of this um, like really dense um, population of immune cells. 
And part of that is because uh, it's really important for anything that we're eating is essentially, you know, potentially has pathogens, potentially has toxins, um, things that our immune system needs to protect us against. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're constantly, you know, inputting things into the system that, um, need to be kind of sorted out by the immune system. We need to know what is okay for us to absorb and, um, to take in and what is, what needs to basically stay in our gut or, Mm -hmm. or even be eliminated. So that's why there's such a dense, um, population there at that mucosal surface. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you think about the fact that your gut microbes are having contact with 70% of your immune system on a daily basis, you know, how could it not affect immunity? And, and we also know that there can be interactions in the gut between the gut and immune cells. And then those same immune cells can then traffic to other areas of the body if they're, um, called to do so. Um, so there's definitely, uh, systemic immune functions um, that are affected by the microbiome as well. Absolutely. And I want to get in a little bit, I'm going to ask more questions about that and how that can relate to um, certain disease states, but I'd also love for you to outline just what the gut brain axis looks like and why what we eat has such a big impact on our mood or our brain function. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one that, uh, is super fascinating to me. I, I had a little bit of background in, in neuroscience and undergrad. So the gut brain access has always been, um, something that's, that's really fascinating with me. me. And th- there's a number of different connections there. So first there's the immune system, because we know that the immune system has effects on the brain. Um, a lot of neurotransmitters are also produced in the gut. Mm-hmm. A good amount of your serotonin and dopamine in your body is actually produced, um, in your gut. And, um, so these neurotransmitters can, um, some of them can traffic through the blood, um, or, or neuroactive metabolites. Um, others can basically signal to the gut nervous system. So the gut actually has its own nervous system, which is connected to our central nervous system, our brain Mm -hmm. by the vagus nerve. And so the vagus nerve is the, is the largest nerve in the body. And, um, a lot of people have probably heard of it in the context of, stress management or meditation Mm -hmm. or things like that, that can help to kind of, um, increase vagal tone or kind of activate the, um, the kind of rest and digest portion of the, of the nervous system. But yeah, this gut brain axis, it has so many, there's so many different connections, um, where, you know, these different metabolites can traffic through the blood to affect the brain. The immune system can impact the brain, um, different hormones produce you know, in the gut can, can affect the brain and, um, and also the vagus nerve. And of course, there's also lots of activity going the other direction as well. Mm -hmm. Um, as I mentioned, things like stress can really affect the gut. Um, and, uh, and even our, our mood can, can potentially affect, affect the gut, um, in that direction as well. So, so just a lot of really fascinating connections. And we've, we've also seen a lot of, um, in a lot of more mechanistic studies where, you know, they'll take, um, for example, the gut microbiome of humans who have major depressive disorder and transplant that into, um, germ-free mice, which are basically mice that have never seen a microbiome in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so we can, we can transplant a microbiome into them and see what phenotype, what, what effects does it actually have on their overall health. And you'll see that when you do that with, um, with basically uh, the microbiome of a depressed person, it will actually, um, induced depressive behaviors 
minimize as well. So we, we definitely see these connections in kind of gut brain disorders Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Really fascinating. And you mentioned a couple of things, um, like stress that impacts the microbiome. There are a lot of things obviously that can influence the microbiome. And so obviously our goal is to want to be in a, in a state of health and have a healthy microbiome, but what are some of the factors that may impact one way or another? Yeah. So I would say kind of going back to those like diet and lifestyle factors, mm-hmm. all those things that affect our overall health are also really having an impact on the microbiome. So diet is a huge one. Um, diet can actually shift the microbiome in less than 48 hours. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really, really powerful. Um, exercise is another one. That's actually the one I spent the bulk of my PhD research studying was the impact of exercise on the gut microbiome. Um Sleep is huge, as is circadian rhythms. Um, we've seen that disruption of those really tends to impact the microbiota negatively. Um, and uh, I would say those are probably the big ones. Obviously, you know, exposure to on the negative side, you know, exposure mm-hmm. to medications or antibiotics are going to disrupt the microbiome. Um, processed foods more, you know, exposure to environmental pollution or those kind of things are all going to have a negative impact on the microbiome. And then there's also a number of things like early in life that set the microbiome in place um, because we basically acquire the microbiome from um, our mom when we, when we pass through the birth canal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if you don't have that vaginal delivery, you don't, you aren't exposed to the same microbes. Um, so we see that things like cesarean section can also kind of alter the microbiome that kind of initially colonizes and that can have some um, subsequent impacts on health. Um, Mm -hmm. Similarly, things like formula feeding as opposed to breastfeeding, um, early antibiotic use um, is particularly um, negatively impactful um, and uh, various things like that uh, Mm -hmm. can, can certainly shape it early in life too. Yeah. Some questions about the early in life factors. I know that obviously there's so much, um, I think, you know, women and mode of birth is, can be a really difficult topic and especially, you know, a lot of factors that are outside of our control of Mm -hmm. what mode of birth we end up having. So say a woman has a C-section and they're really concerned about, you know, the microbiome of their child. Is there anything that they can do or anything that the research has shown that can influence um, the microbiome in a positive way for infants? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And actually there's a pilot study that came out recently that showed that if you, if the mom has to have, have, has to have a C-section, you can basically do a mom to baby FMT, mom to baby fecal transplant, Uh because actually counterintuitively, it's not the vaginal microbiome that mostly gets passed. Mm -hmm. It's actually the, uh, exposure to the mom's fecal microbiome because of the proximity of the birth canal to the rectum that, so you're actually exposed to the mom's fecal microbiome. So if you can essentially perform that transplant manually, (laughs) um, to a baby who has a C-section, you can actually completely, um, abrogate the, the negative effects on microbiome trajectory. So, so in that study, they actually just collected a sample from the mom a couple of weeks before, Mm -hmm. um, her, she was due for a Mm C-section and, um, and basically stored it and then mixed it with the, the first milk. Wow. Um, yeah. That's a pretty easy intervention to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it was a pilot study, but I, I think like 
that's increasingly where where the research is going to to help support that. And I, I mm-hmm. hope that soon it's it's standard of care because yeah, it has has huge implications. And and so many moms don't have a choice about having a C-section. Absolutely. How about you mentioned medications? So we know obviously antibiotics are a big one, but any other medications that we know influence the microbiome? Yeah. So actually about a quarter of non-antibiotic medications also impact the microbiome. Wow. I didn't know it was that Um, many. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them. And, and it's, I mean, actually some of them, the therapeutic effect is actually mediated through the microbiome, Mm. um, which Mm, may make sense, may have some effects on, you know, the variability where Mm -hmm. it's, you know, some drugs work in some people and don't work in other people. Um, so certainly, I mean, some of the big ones, metformin definitely has a big impact on the microbiome and its effects are actually mediated through changes in the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, antipsychotic medications um, and SSRIs really have um, an impact through the microbiome and some of their mechanism is actually mediated through, through changes in the microbiome. Um, I'm not sure I can remember the others off the top of my head, <laughs> but those are, those are kind of the two, um, the two big ones. Totally. Um, I always think of like NSAIDs. Oh PPIs, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, PPIs are a huge one too, huge. especially mm-hmm. for the small intestinal microbiome. Yeah. And then, um, uh, oral contraceptives also, I think of. Yes. As yes. Well. Yeah. Um, but things that like, you know, most people don't know, or it's not something that you, you know, when you're started on these medications, it's not usually a consideration. Um, mm-hmm. so it's interesting to just to be aware of and think about that. Definitely. Okay. So lots of different factors that can influence the microbiome. Um, what are we looking for? And you mentioned a lot of things that can be, have a positive impact. What are we looking for in a healthy microbiome? What do we see in, in healthy people when we study their, yeah. uh, their microbiome? That's like the, the number one question that <laughs> researchers are trying to answer and have been trying to answer for like a decade, actually. Um, so there was the whole human microbiome project, which was essentially kind of an, an add-on to the human genome project, trying to understand what is a healthy microbiome. Mm-hmm. Is there a core set of healthy microbes? Um, and, and the reality is there's so much variability mm-hmm. in, from one person to the next in terms mm-hmm. of what is, what is a healthy microbiome, that there's no core set of microbes that, we all, that all healthy people share. Um, there, do, there are some characteristics of a healthy microbiome, typically higher microbial diversity tends to correlate with health um, and, and also tends to have some benefits for kind of the stability of the community as well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so much individual variability that it's, it's very, very hard to actually define a, mm-hmm. a healthy microbiome. Um, but there, is, there are some patterns that we do s- tend to see as more common with dysbiosis versus healthy. And one of those is kind of an expansion of, of a particular group of microbes called proteobacteria, mm-hmm. which really thrive in the presence of oxygen, which really isn't supposed to be in the colon, the large intestine in any appreciable amount and tends to, um, this group tends to expand during, during dysbiosis that we see this, this um, flourishing of proteobacteria. And we see a decline in some of the more beneficial species that produce um, metabolites like butyrate, which is um, basically this small molecule that helps to feed the gut epithelial cells and keep, keeps the gut barrier happy. So there are some of these patterns that we do see, um, but it is very tricky to, to say, you know, what is a healthy microbiome other than what I like to say is 
a healthy microbiome is probably the microbiome you have when you're healthy. When you're healthy, right. It's probably easier yeah. to study it, to study it that way. But, but yeah. interesting to know, okay, there's at least a couple of things that are common when we are mm-hmm. out of balance. Um, so let's say that, you know, you are having some symptoms, you're not feeling healthy and you notice that those things are out of balance. Maybe you have more proteobacteria or you have more of an oxygen rich environment. Um, what are the things that you could do to move that back towards a a state of health. Yeah. So definitely first, you know, we're really dialing in all of the diet and lifestyle things first, because those are really what's going to most significantly impact the health mm-hmm. of the microbiome and, um, and really support the health of the gut barrier, um, which is really actually important that um, the, the health of the gut barrier is ultimately what determines what microbes can thrive there, because there's a lot of mechanisms um, that a healthy gut will actually um, basically institute on its microbiome to, to make sure that it maintains a healthy composition. So, um, so beyond those diet and lifestyle factors though, typically, um, what I, what I typically, uh, do with, in working with clients is, is usually get some kind of stool test, just a screen for any major gut pathologies, any kind of inflammation that's going on, um, any infections that might be kind of leading to this disrupted microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, um, you know, some of the things that we might do are, are kind of some, some tweaks within the diet, um, to really try to bring down inflammation. So we might try an elimination diet. Um, we might try, um, reducing fiber intake for a period of time if they seem to be having more gas and bloating and some of those. So it really depends on what symptoms they're presenting with in terms of how we might approach kind of shifting their microbiome back towards health. Um, but those are some of the things we might try diet wise. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are, there are some things we can do, um, in the supplement realm that might also help to, to kind of shift the microbiome in a healthy direction. So for example, if you're struggling, you know, one of the things I mentioned was that when we get in this kind of state of dysbiosis or unhealthy state, there tends to be lower amounts of butyrate production. And then what happens is that butyrate is supposed to be feeding the gut barrier, but if that's, if basically you have this dysbiotic gut microbiome, it's not feeding the gut barrier appropriately. And then you kind of get in this vicious cycle. So one of the things that we can do is actually supplement with butyrate for a short period of time that helps to support the gut barrier and actually kind of kicks in a positive feedback loop to actually support the, your natural native butyrate producers coming back too. Um, So that's an example of, of one thing that we can kind of do to, to intervene and sort of break the cycle there. Um, a lot of practitioners are a fan of using antimicrobial herbs to try to modulate the microbiome. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely a lot more conservative with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a, they're, they're really overused in general. We don't really understand how most of them work or what they're actually doing to the microbiome. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, you know, throwing, throwing them in and guessing that they're going <laughs> to, you know, shift things in a beneficial way. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them are just as potent as antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that's, that's not really recognized by a lot of people because they're natural. Right. And so mm-hmm. they think that, um, you know, that they're not going to have, have detrimental effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see a lot of people who have been harmed by overdoing the, the herbal antimicrobial. So I'm, I'm not really a fan of going that route. I occasionally use some that are a little bit more nourishing as opposed to kind of, um, 
trying to kill off mm-hmm. bacteria um, and that have a little bit more tradition of use or um, have been more clinically studied. Uh, but generally speaking, I tend to take a more nourishing approach trying to support the gut barrier um, with things like butyrate, um, things like um, colostrum, and there's another um, version of it called uh, serum bovine immunoglobulins that's, um, that's come out um, in recent years that's really quite helpful. Um, so there are various things in, in that realm that we can, we can do to help, help nourish things. You've been talking a lot about the gut lining. I'd love to talk just to dive in a little bit more on that. And, um, you know, you know, obviously you want to have a intact gut lining, but what factors can cause it to be leaky or to have this intestinal permeability? And then what implications does that have on our health? Yeah. So a lot of the factors we were talking about earlier that can cause, um, negatively impact the gut microbiome can also negatively impact the gut barrier. So, you know, a processed unhealthy diet um, can certainly impact the gut barrier, especially um, when we get a lot of um, basically inflammatory insults going on to, to the gut barrier. Inflammation is really kind of, if I have to boil it down to one thing, (laughs) it's really inflammation is what Mm -hmm. kind of disrupts the gut barrier. A lot of things can, can potentially cause that, but um, but yeah, so infection could do it. Um, food intolerances, like unknown food intolerances, can definitely um, impact gut barrier function. Uh, nutrient deficiencies, since we basically need adequate mm-hmm. nutrients to constantly be repairing that gut, my, gut barrier, it actually um, re- basically rejuvenates every three days. It turns over. Um, so we constantly need um, effective um, nutrient status in order to, to repair that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, certainly, I mean, generally just things like avoiding antibiotics, mm-hmm. medications that disrupt the gut barrier, um, those kind of things, um, those stress, kind of yeah. stress, you know, yeah. all the same things we were talking totally. about already. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot of your PhD research was on exercise in the gut. Um, what do we know about the impact of exercise on the gut line? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting area and one that I, um, I started to get at like right before I, I, I left from my okay. PhD. Um, there's, there's a lot of research to suggest that high intensity aerobic exercise actually causes acute gut permeability. Mm-hmm. So during exercise, especially hard aerobic exercise, your core temp rises and blood and oxygen are all diverted away from your gut. Mm -hmm. And so this actually causes kind of transient um, ischemia or um, heat stress and and, um, lack of oxygen to the gut Mm -hmm. Um, and even to the gut epithelium. And so that all leads to increased gut permeability. Um, But my question was, what I really wanted to get at was whether chronic exercise might actually train the barrier to be stronger over time, Mm -hmm. you know, just as, just as you train your muscles and they adapt Mm -hmm. and they kind of have this acute damage response, right. But then they repair stronger. I wondered if the same thing was going on in the gut Um, because trained athletes have been shown to have lower levels of circulating endotoxin, which is sort Mm -hmm. of a marker of, um, of gut permeability. So they have 
they have lower kind of baseline gut permeability. So I wondered if kind of this, um, this was an adaptation effect. And, and we did collect some pre preliminary data from our exercise trial to suggest that that might be the effect mm -hmm. that's happening, where you are causing a little bit of acute basically barrier damage every time you exercise, mm -hmm. but over the long term, your gut barrier may strengthen from that, um, that kind of stimulus. But obviously you don't want to overdo that just as you don't want to overdo it with your muscle adaptation, totally. right? Yeah. So, um, and there's also certain things that can either um, increase or decrease the amount of um, exercise induced permeability. So things like zinc, curcumin, um, which is the mm -hmm. kind of the active part of turmeric, um, glutamine uh, and colostrum have all been shown to reduce exercise-induced gut permeability, whereas things like wheat, lactose, casein, um, which, you know, the um, protein in milk, mm -hmm. um, carbohydrate gels, NSAIDs, and stress all seem to mm -hmm. increase that uh, that damage to during exercise. So, so that is something for athletes to be aware of that you know, what, especially what you're consuming, like in the couple hours before you exercise can really affect how your gut is affected by that exercise bout. That's fascinating. So it's not just, you know, we think of exercise as this hormetic response for our muscles, but it's potentially also having this similar impact on our gut. Um, and what a great illustration of the foods that we're eating, like you said, um, where maybe that was you before you made all these changes where it's a lot of gluten and dairy, and maybe people are taking NSAIDs cause they're overtraining or mm -hmm. having aches or pains and how that could potentially push it over the edge from being a positive stimulus to actually being a negative. Um, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So there's all these factors that can impact the gut lining. Let's say that you have you know, a quote unquote leaky gut, or you have some intestinal permeability, what happens then? You've obviously got your immune system right there inside the mm -hmm. epithelial lining. Um, how can that then manifest in symptoms or different disease states? Yeah. So your immune system is right there and it, it does, uh, somewhat help to mitigate the effects of, of the gut being permeable, but if it's, if it's overwhelmed, um, we definitely can see systemic effects. So some of those, um, some larger proteins might leak into systemic circulation. Um, they can either travel via the portal vein, get into the liver, um, and you're causing liver stress. Um, sometimes they can also even get into more systemic circulation where you're then basically having an, a systemic immune response to these larger dietary proteins and microbial components that aren't supposed to be in circulation. So it really can generally kind of trigger this, uh, this overall systemic inflammation is what we see. And that can, you know, that has been shown to directly lead to things like metabolic syndrome. Um, I, there's also kind of um, preliminary suggestions in the literature too, that this, this could be related to um, things like skin inflammation as well. Um, or like, I, like I mentioned, liver stress, um, different, different impacts on, on various organs um, from, uh, from this intestinal permeability. Mm -hmm. So just general, general inflammation, which may show up with mm -hmm. different symptoms, depending on the organ system that's most affected. Right. Okay. So for someone who maybe has some symptoms, um, like you said, first thing we're trying lifestyle, we're making sure that, that our diet is, is dialed in, we're avoiding processed foods and 
a lot of sugar, um, working on, you know, having regular exercise, getting good sleep, making sure that we're doing something to downregulate our stress response. Mm-hmm. Um, if that, you know, you're doing all those things, you feel like those things are dialed in, but you're still having symptoms. You mentioned earlier, um, stool testing. And I think there's, you know, now there's so many different tests available. Um, there's a lot of different options, both through, you know, more integrative or functional practitioners or direct to consumer testing. When should someone get a stool test? And then what are some of the pitfalls in, in navigating how to use these tests? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I actually just published an updated guide to stool testing on my blog. So if anyone's interested, that's like, that'll be the detailed version, but. And I um, saw that the two that you like the most from a unbiased research perspective are the two that I use the most. So it made me feel a lot more confident (laughs) in the test that I'm using. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, yeah, so, so I can definitely talk about those too. Um, but in general, you know, people ask me, does everyone need a stool test? And, um, and I, don't, I don't think the answer is yes to that. Um, I think if, if you're healthy and you're feeling great and you're happy with your gut health and, you know, you, you have good energy, there's really no reason that you need a stool test. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of people who are just fascinated to look at their gut microbiome and, and that's awesome. I always support that, but I don't necessarily think that everyone needs a stool test, partly because it's entirely possible that you find something that is just a, you know, a red herring on a stool test. And, um, and that's obviously something we have to navigate when someone has symptoms and we're doing a stool test. We want to be careful not to overinterpret things, but, um, but I don't, I don't necessarily think it's true that, that everyone needs a stool test um, if they're healthy and they're, they're happy with their overall gut health and their, their overall health in general. Mm-hmm. But um, anyone who's kind of got the diet and lifestyle factors dialed in and they're still having either gut symptoms or even kind of extra intestinal health symptoms that they can't really seem to get to the bottom of, um, like fatigue or definitely food intolerances, um, just like lower energy, skin conditions, you know, any anything that might potentially be related back to the gut, which of course mm-hmm. is a lot of things, <laughs> a, um, lot. a lot of things. And we, we don't ever want to, you know, I don't ever want to say like those things are definitely attributed to something that's going on in your gut because there's, there's so many factors that are um, influencing those, those disease manifestations. But, um, but I do think it's worth in that case, getting at least one gut test to just kind of screen and make sure that there's, there's nothing going on. That's obviously, um, amiss in your gut that Mm -hmm. might be contributing to your symptoms, like a parasitic infection or, um, you know, kind of silent gut inflammation that you weren't aware of that, Mm -hmm. um, would, would need further looking into. So, um, so yeah, I do, I do recommend it in that way as a screening tool for folks who aren't quite satisfied with their health and, um, want to see if, if the gut might lead to some answers for that. Um, and then, uh, the two tests that I use most frequently, um, for looking at, at the gut are, um, the Genova GI effects comprehensive, um, which is like a nice clinical overview. It's got a lot of different markers for digestion and absorption, inflammation, um, looks at some of the gut metabolites, um, and also gives a a brief overview of the bacteria that might be going on there. And it also screens for parasites. Um, so that's kind of like a good overall, um, look at the gut environment in general 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one that I use is the Thorn gut test, which until recently was called Longevity, but has now been acquired by Thorn. Um, and this is using metagenomic sequencing. So that's basically deep sequencing of all the microbes that are in your gut. So any microbe that is known to science, it will pick <laughs> it up, um, which is pretty cool. We get like a ton of raw data um, back from that. And they do let you access that raw data, which is one of the reasons that I really like Thorn um, for that. And so basically that's like, you know, the first one, the GI effects is a more clinical overview. And then the thorn test is more like deep dive into the microbiome. And, um, we can also in that look for potential stealth infections and things like that. So I would say in general, um, for someone who's kind of doing their first look at gut health, I'd go with the GI effects. Um, and then usually I'd go with, um, add on thorn as well. If there's, you know, if we suspect potential gut infection or you have overt gut symptoms and kind of want to deeper dive into that. Mm-hmm. And when you have that information, then what are some of the, how does that information then guide you in terms of how to, you know, what might need to be addressed? Yeah. So, um, certainly some of the things that we're screening for like parasitic infection, that would be something that usually requires pharmaceutical treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, there are certainly some things we can do to support the gut during that process, um, to kind of mitigate any, uh, side effects of, of that on the rest of the microbiome. Um, but other things that might come up on a stool test are basically different patterns of dysbiosis. So I mentioned one that high proteobacteria is something that can mm-hmm. come up um, and is something that can can direct um, recommendations. The other big ones would be um, methane overgrowth um, and hydrogen sulfide overgrowth. So these are basically methane and hydrogen sulfide are two gases that are produced in the gut and they're supposed to be there and normal produced in normal amounts. Mm -hmm. But if your gut microbiome becomes skewed towards one or the other one, um, then you can have some unpleasant symptoms that accompany that. And it can Mm -hmm. have kind of overall um, negative impacts on on the gut barrier as well. So those are always things that I'm looking at. And those can often inform um, dietary approaches Mm -hmm. um, that might be helpful. And and also some, some supplemental support usually Um, some certain nutrients that we might want to focus on um, to make sure those are adequate for each of those. Um, So those are all things that I'm looking for. Um, And then other things would be like yeast infection. We might find um, it's a little bit harder to screen for in stool, but um, is something that can come up on there. Um, And then also just, you know, some of the digestion and absorption markers, if we're struggling with that, we might consider digestive enzymes or other digestive support. Um, And if there's anything with the inflammation, um, if it's kind of lower level inflammation, then we might consider something like looking into gut infection, if we suspect that, or considering an elimination diet, if there's some um, suspected food sensitivities or... um, or if it's like really severe inflammation, then I might be then referring them to a GI specialist to just get mm-hmm. that checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with a lot of these tests, you're looking at obviously the different, um, the composition of the microbiome. Mm-hmm. And I know probiotics are a very hot topic and there's tons of probiotics out there available. What's your general overall take on probiotics and are they useful in what situations might they be useful? Yeah. So probiotics can definitely be useful, but it's important to 
choose them very wisely because mm-hmm. not all of them are helpful. Um, most of them are probably just benign. They're not, you know, they're not going to hurt harm you, but they're not going to help you either. Um, so my general approach to probiotics are, I always, um, for one thing, always want to know the strain of the probiotics I'm using. So microbes are always denoted by their genus, their species, and their strain. So for example, lactobacillus plantarum 299V, that's lactobacillus is the genus, plantarum is the species, and 299V is the strain. So it's basically the letters and numbers that we want to see on the label Mm -hmm. um, for it to be kind of a a strain-specific probiotic. Um, And that means that they're disclosing exactly what, what is in Um, Mm -hmm. the probiotic and, and also looking for specific strains that have been well studied in humans. So have clinical safety and ideally have, have efficacy for the thing that you're trying to use them for. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's, you know, we have enough research now to basically match probiotic to condition. Um, And I think increasingly we, we should be doing that whenever possible. Now, if you're just someone who, you know, is generally healthy, doesn't really have any health complaints and you want to try a probiotic, there are some that I, I recommend that have just been really well studied in humans and um, are kind of like an overall, just kind of good maintenance probiotic. And mm-hmm. one that I would recommend is uh, Visbiome, V-I-S-B-I-O-M-E, okay. which is um, used to be called VSL3. Um, mm-hmm. It's now been kind of rebranded. Um, but that one is kind of like an, a good overall maintenance probiotic that I um, that is generally really well tolerated and, and um, certainly has some some benefits. Um, but in general, kind of more trying to match, um, probiotic to condition. And actually there's a, um, a clinician in uh, Australia, Dr. Jason Horlack, who has, um, a really great database, um, on his website called probiotic advisor. Hmm. And you can actually type in any condition and he's got all of the, um, probiotics that have been clinically studied for, um, that particular condition. So, um, that's a really great resource for, um, for finding, finding evidence-based probiotics to, to try. That's awesome. Okay. So taking it by condition, a lot of people will, um, will take probiotics maybe if they, if they have to take an antibiotic for one reason or another, but I know you sometimes recommend some other things to help mitigate any potential damage from the antibiotic to the microbiome. Um, what's the reason for that? Or, or if we do take a probiotic and an antibiotic, is it helping? Is it not doing anything? What do we know? Yeah. So I think the, the research is pretty limited here on, in terms of what impact that actually has on the microbiome. But I became pretty interested in exploring that topic um, when there was a pair of papers that came out from Sal a couple of years ago that suggested that probiotics might actually delay the recovery of the native microbiome after antibiotics. Um, and you know, honestly, if we, if we think about it in terms of kind of thinking of the gut as an ecosystem, it actually makes a lot of sense. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, if you think of antibiotics as clearing the rainforest mm-hmm. and then probiotics as, you know, planting some kale and arugula, <laughs> and is that really going to help bring back the rainforest? Um, you know, or is it actually going to take up the space mm-hmm. that those, those microbes would be coming back into? So that's kind of what we, what they saw in this study is that the, especially the lactobacillus based probiotics were actually inhibiting a lot of the beneficial species from being able to kind of come back and fill their niche. Um, so I generally don't recommend probiotics with antibiotics, um, with a few exceptions. You know, if you're, if you're in a hospitalized situation and you're really 
you know, susceptible mm-hmm. to C. diff infection or something like that, that it might be worth considering. Um, and it's possible that probiotics like um, the yeast, yeast probiotics, like Saccharomyces boulardii, um, mm-hmm. might be a little bit more helpful in that regard. Mm-hmm. And those actually have the most evidence for preventing um, antibiotic associated C. diff and diarrhea. Um, so if you were going to take a probiotic with antibiotics, I'd probably go with that one, but we still don't have a lot of research on how that impacts microbiome recovery. Um, what I recommend more so is actually supplementing with butyrate because, um, really the reason that we have dysbiosis occurring post antibiotics is primarily because when you take antibiotics, you're wiping out all the butyrate producing bacteria. Um, and the gut barrier starts to starve and it starts Mm -hmm. to leak oxygen into the gut when it's basically starving for energy and it's using Mm -hmm. more glucose instead of butyrate. And so that is essentially what, what then, um, promotes the overgrowth of a lot of these more pathogenic or undesirable species. Um, so if we can support the gut with butyrate during antibiotics, it's been shown that we can actually potentially inhibit that antibiotic induced dysbiosis. Um, so that's typically what I recommend, um, during antibiotics. And then also just making sure that you're really eating a good solid diet, you know, not a lot of refined carbohydrates during that time and to really kind of set back in a healthy ecosystem. That's great to know. And I just learned that from reading your stuff. So I'm excited to implement that with my patients now. Um, very cool. Well, we have covered a lot of ground. I feel like we could go (laughs) for a while. There's so much to talk about here, but, um, before I get to the the three questions that I ask everyone at the end, I'd love to just hear about what you're most excited about in this field. Like what things are you, you know, curious about that you think we're going to be learning over the next five to 10 years. And, you know, what are, what are you most excited about here? Yeah. That's, that's always a hard question to answer. (laughs) Uh, cause there's so many things right now I'm getting really interested in tryptophan in the gut. So mm. tryptophan metabolites are like this whole other section of, um, gut metabolites and have implications for the gut brain axis and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm really interested in that. Um, uh, my husband and I are also expecting in April. So I'm really excited ah, to dive into the, thank you. Uh, I'm really excited to dive into the infant microbiome a lot more, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I have started to come across some of that really interesting C-section research and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So I think, um, that's going to be a really cool area to, to get into more, but yeah, awesome. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm always, uh, just really excited by, by like the variety of research that comes out. And that's part of the reason why I really like science writing as opposed to, um, you know, doing academic research is that mm-hmm. I, I kind of get to see it all and like get to try and synthesize right. it all. And that's, um, that's and you I actually have, do. have time to be able to, to keep up with all of it instead of your very narrow focus of what your, right. your research question is. Super exactly. cool. Well, at the end of the podcast, I usually ask three questions. So one is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Hmm. Three things that I do on a regular basis. I would say um, getting outside first thing in the morning and exercising. Is, is huge for me, not only for my physical health, but also just like mental health, like mm-hmm. starting the day outside. Totally. Um, that circadian rhythm and the exercise killing two yeah. birds of Glenstone. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say the second is, is meditation mm-hmm. and stress management. I've 
gotten really interested in that the last couple of years. And that's been really um, helpful for me along with just other, um, other kind of healing, healing modalities in terms of um, like, uh, I know you recently had a tapping guy on the, yes. on the podcast, like that, that, that's been really um, interesting for me to experiment with. And just a lot of, a lot of other things kind of in the, in that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one, I would, it's hard to pinpoint. Um, I would probably just say I, I really do prioritize sleep mm-hmm. and rest. Um, and I've, I've been really good about that ever since, uh, my six hour stints in high school. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I usually get, I absolutely get eight hours a night and, and mm-hmm. often will give myself the opportunity for more. Um, I almost never wake up to an alarm. So that's amazing. Um, so definitely sleep is, is big for me too. That's awesome. Well, I'll be sending positive vibes your way for, you know, infant sleep also <laughs> coming <laughs> yes, up. <thank> you. <laughs> I know it's always a challenge. Um, and really cool to hear about the meditation or mindfulness practices. Has there been anything that you found that's been really helpful for you in that journey? Cause I know for a lot of people, you know, there's so many different ways to do it and it can be hard to find, you know, what works for you. Yeah, for me, it was, um, I'll be honest, I really struggled with meditation for a long, long Mm -hmm. time. Um, And it was really actually finding Eckhart Tolle, um, Mm, who's kind of of a little new agey um, for for my liking, but it is still like really, um, it was listening to his audiobook where I had like my first deep meditative experience. And it was very profound um, in a way that like really shifted things. And I was actually able to meditate after that. That's amazing. Um, so I started so, listening to the power of now. Is that the one? Or is yeah, it? yeah. I started one. listening, but I'm only, I think I only got a couple chapters in, but maybe I need to go back and finish it now <laughs> that you said that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really like the audiobook. And even anytime that I'm feeling like I can't uh, sit down and just like purely meditate, I'll just mm-hmm. put, you know, put that on for, for totally. 20 minutes. And, and that often really is helpful. Um, so yeah, I would say, I would say that was big. Um, I've also used Sam Harris's meditation app waking Mm -hmm. up a little bit. Um, and I like that. Um, but mostly, I mean, I've tried various forms of meditation as well. I did a loving kindness meditation retreat Mm -hmm. and quite enjoyed that. That was probably the most, um, that was a part-time retreat during COVID, um, online. So it wasn't quite the same as an immersive retreat. I'd still Mm -hmm. really like to do like a full on yeah. Um, immersive retreat, but haven't, haven't quite gotten there yet. Uh, yeah, just, just a lot of different little things, but honestly, my, my favorite is just like open monitoring meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find that I even get creative ideas for writing and things. And so I'll write totally. those down and kind of go back to the meditation. So, um, yeah, that's great. What's one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on? I would say the biggest thing that I have trouble with is that I love baking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, love, I really, uh, and I've always been like ever since I was little, because I, I ate nothing but refined carbohydrates for like the first 20 years of my mm-hmm. life. I still have a tendency to like really like sweets and especially, and even like emotionally, like it's definitely mm-hmm. a, um, one of, I have to be careful that I don't get, get triggered to, mm-hmm. to eat sweets. And um, and interestingly, when I'm prior to pregnancy, 
I was often very low carb, which actually mm-hmm. helped me a lot. I didn't really have a lot of those, um, those cravings, but I find that if I'm introducing more carbs into my diet, then I tend to, oh, yeah. um, it, it tends to be easier to kind of <laughs> go that route. So I'd say that's probably the one thing that I, um, struggle with the most. And I, I, it's, it's, I would say it's pretty infrequent, but I, I definitely, um, yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would say that was, that's the one thing that comes to mind. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I just, a friend told me a new recipe for these muffins last week that have like blueberries and walnuts and dark chocolate chips. And I definitely went overboard on those. So <laughs> they were all gluten-free and, you know, didn't have yeah. sugar, but still uh-huh. you can go overboard <laughs> on just about anything. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? I like that question. I think honestly, what I've come to in the last year or so is really a life that is true to myself mm-hmm. and is not trying to meet anyone else's expectations, um, but really supports me physically, mentally, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. Um, and I can relate to that a lot. Well, thank you again so much, Lucy. This has been awesome. Um, I would love to have you on again at some point in the future and we can dive deeper on some of these topics um, and hear all the things that you learn about, you know, the infant microbiome and all these, all these other areas. Um, but for people who are listening, who want to just learn more, you have a ton of content on your blog and different courses um, and you do consults. Where can people learn more or find what you're up to? Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really enjoyable. Um, and yeah, everything that I do can pretty much be found at lucymailing.com. It's all, it's all there. Awesome. And you do have a Patreon, correct? I do have a Patreon. She has a Patreon. Well. So you can find that through, through my main website too. Yeah. Yes. So if you love what she's putting out there, go ahead and support her so she can keep doing it and keep sharing all this great information and translating the science for the rest of the world to understand Um, We appreciate all the work that you're doing. So thank you, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.